Our reading this evening is uh, Mark chapter 14. Um, in, your, in the Bibles in the chair in front of you, it starts on page 1019. Uh, the majority of it is on page 1020 and 1021. I will be reading bits and pieces um, and uh, we'll be jumping around during, sorry, I will be reading bits and pieces. I won't be doing any jumping around uh, during the reading. Um, Mark 14, starting at verse 1. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Moving on to verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Again, moving down to verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus... Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And turning over to verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, This fellow's one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I don't know what your reaction is to hearing that passage read at Christmas. It doesn't feel like an enormously uh, Christmassy Well, it's not Christmas, as Don told us, it's Advent, but it doesn't feel like an enormously kind of Christmassy passage. Uh, But there is an obvious Christmas connection, and that is that almost all the action takes place in one evening, which makes it very much like Die Hard, which is a Christmas movie. And I will go to my grave claiming that. Um, First reaction to Mark chapter 14. It's quite long, isn't it? It's very important just to to notice things when we look at passages of Scripture. And the first thing to notice about Mark 14 is it is really long. 72 verses in uh, the way that it's laid out for us makes it by nearly 50% the longest chapter in Mark's Gospel. Uh, 55 of those verses describe the events of one evening. It's about three times as long as Mark's description of the crucifixion. Mark is actually giving an awful lot of attention to the events of one evening, and not the evening you would choose or predict. If, if you know the story of Jesus, you know all the moments that happen in his life, you know that there's a great focus on the cross and on the resurrection, But Mark actually spends more time telling us about the evening before Jesus was crucified than he does about the crucifixion. And that's actually worth just pausing and noticing, isn't it? Mark thinks that the events of the night Jesus was betrayed are so significant that he gives them more time by miles than he gives anything else in his gospel. That's 
a surprise, I think. So what's going on? Why does he think it's so important? Why the massive focus on the night that Jesus was betrayed? Well, we don't have time to deal with everything that's in the passage, but I'm going to just pick out a few themes and a few things to notice, a few, a few things maybe that ought to make us just stop and think, and hopefully the picture will become clear, and we'll see why Mark is so focused on this brief moment in Jesus' life. In fact, this three days leading up to the crucifixion, out of a life of 30 years, Mark gives about 11% of his gospel. And actually, to the night that Jesus was betrayed, it's about 8 or 9% of the whole story of Jesus' life, as Mark tells it. So, let's pick up the themes. First of all, uh, the theme of fulfillment. There's lots of fulfillment going on here. Uh, and um, the first thing to notice is the way that what is happening is fulfilling scripture. All the way through Mark, Jesus has been talking about the scriptures being fulfilled in his life. Uh, and now we see how the scriptures are fulfilled in his death. The first time he mentions scripture, he only mentions it twice in uh, Mark 14. The first time is verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the sort of fulfillment of scripture that I was expecting to find here. But I'm amazed how much work that uh, little sentence from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 is actually doing here in Mark 14. He says to the disciples, the scriptures must be fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He mentions scripture one more time, uh, and that is in verse 49, where he's confronted by the religious authorities. He's come out uh, armed, ready to put down a small rebellion uh, to arrest a simple teacher. And he says... Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. So he's mentioned scripture in verse 27. You will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He then says to those who've come to arrest him, well, you never arrested me before, but the scripture must be fulfilled. And then what happens? Look down. Verse 50. Then everyone deserted him, and fled. So the scripture is fulfilled, first of all, in, in, in Mark 14, that the most explicit fulfillment of scripture is in Jesus' disciples abandoning him. I find that quite striking. Linked into that fulfillment of the scripture predicting the disciples falling away is Jesus' personal prophecy to Peter. And Mark actually highlights it very strongly in a quite subtle way in Jesus' trial. So um, in uh, Mark 14, uh, 53, Jesus is taken uh, before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish ruling council, 
Uh, and we read verse 54 that Peter follows him a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest where he sits with the guards and warms himself at the fire. So Peter, who just an hour before has been swearing blind that he will never desert Jesus, even if he has to die, Jesus is on trial, and Peter is identifying with the captors, not the captive. He's warming himself around the guard's fire in the high priest's courtyard. He is making himself at home amongst Jesus' enemies. Uh, And then Mark switches in uh, to telling us about what goes on in the trial, but as you read through, it's in your mind, there's Peter, not at Jesus' side, but identifying with the captors. Uh, And at at the end of Jesus' so-called trial, verse 64, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now, there's a subtle hint at Old Testament prophecy here uh, to a genuinely Christmassy passage, which is uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, And in Isaiah 11, a passage that's very familiar to us uh, from uh, Christmas Christmas carol services, I'm sure for for many of us at least, Uh, let me just read the first few verses. Uh, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, what's clear here is that the the Messiah that's prophesied in Isaiah 11 does not judge, does not observe, does not make decisions in the same way as ordinary people. He does not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Instead, he is filled with the Spirit of God. And in fact, it's slightly hidden in English translation, but in verse 3 of Isaiah 11, where it says he will delight in the fear of the Lord, literally it is, the fear of the Lord will smell lovely to him which is a picture of how God responds to sacrifice in the Old Testament. He, he smells the sacrifices, uh, and they bring him pleasure. Uh, and, and the Messiah is one to whom righteousness will be that, that pleasing aroma. Now, when you read Isaiah 11, and you think, well, he's not going to judge by what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ears, what sense is left by which he will judge? Well, it is the sense that's there at the beginning of verse 3, the sense of smell. And that's what's going on when they blindfold him and beat him and say, prophesy. They're saying, if you're the Messiah, judge us by smelling. Prophesy. Prove that you truly are the Messiah. Now, Jesus has refused to answer, and he refuses here to prophesy to them. And yet, Mark pulls it together, because what immediately happens after they tell him to prophesy and he refuses is that we switch back to Peter. And Peter is below in the courtyard, and someone recognizes him and says, you're with that Jesus, aren't you? And Peter says, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Three times he denies Jesus. And then the cock crows. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. 
before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. So we've had the scriptures prophesying that the disciples will fall away. We've had Jesus prophesying it specifically and personally to Peter. And it connects it with his identity as the Messiah. This is the the prophecy that Jesus will offer. His prophecy to Peter. Not to his captors, but to his weak friend. And those prophecies of desertion, there's a third one that you pick up in verses 51 and 52. So everyone deserts verse 50, uh, and then verse 51, and this is one of those puzzling verses that lots of ink's been spilled on over the years, but I think it's quite simple, actually. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's one of those verses that's very strange, and Lucy's scratching your head, until, I think, until you turn to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2 is a prophecy of God's judgment on his people Israel for their sin. Uh, And it's quite poignant because in verse 6 of Amos chapter 2, we read this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They sell the innocent for silver. Well, hang on. We've just heard about Judas doing that earlier on. Judas sells Jesus for silver and Jesus is innocent. That's what his, his trial actually, as we'll see, establishes is that he is innocent. He doesn't deserve condemnation. But Judas has sold the innocent for silver. But then you read on in Amos chapter 2, verse 16, this terrible prophecy of judgment falling on Israel, of of, of the wrath of God falling on Israel. Chapter 2, verse 16 of the book of Amos. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Here is this young man, this symbol of strength, in verses 51 and 52, running away naked. Uh, And so this this desertion of Jesus is pointing in three different ways to how Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures, how Jesus truly is the Messiah who knows everything. He's able to tell Peter exactly what's going to happen that he is the Messiah who will be deserted by his followers, uh, and that this is the day of God's judgment. This is the terrible day on which God will bring judgment on his people who sell the innocent for silver. So that desertion motif that runs all the way through is pointing us to who Jesus is. It's also telling us something about what discipleship is. We'll come to that. But it's pointing us to who Jesus is, but also to why this is such a momentous moment in human history. This is the moment when the hammer falls. This is the moment when God judges evil. And in Amos, God says to his people, Woe to you who look for the day of the Lord, because it is a day of darkness and not of light. It is a terrible day, a day of judgment. 
So Mark cleverly and subtly is pointing us to that. This is judgment day. That's what we're reading about here in Mark 14. It is judgment day, which brings us to the second theme of fulfillment, which is not so much the sort of scriptures and predictions as the day of the Passover. So Mark makes it pretty clear to us what he thinks uh, chapter 14 is about, though he's not writing in chapters, but what this section is about. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Uh, Then on verse 12, in verse 12, he says, on the first day of the festival unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for the Passover? Uh, And then uh, the next uh, few verses are concerned with the disciples preparing the Passover and then eating the Passover with Jesus. Now, if you know the story of the Passover, what Mark is foreshadowing there becomes very clear. Particularly, he's saying this is the day when the lambs are being sacrificed. So back when Israel were slaves in Egypt, being held captive by Pharaoh... Uh, God brings all kinds of plagues on Egypt, uh, and Pharaoh keeps teetering on the edge of letting Israel go, but constantly says no. So in the end, God says through Moses, I'm going to bring the last, most terrible plague on you, the death of the firstborn. And he says, in every household in Egypt, whether great or poor, the firstborn son in every household will die. But God says to his people, what you're to do is to take a lamb that is perfect and without blemish, and on the night that I tell you, you are to kill that lamb, you are to daub its blood on the doorposts of your houses and eat its flesh, and when the angel of destruction comes through the land, he will see that blood on the doorpost, know that a death has already taken place, and so pass over. And in the house of the children of Israel, no firstborn son will die. The symbolism, the imagery is very clear, isn't it? The lamb dies in place of the firstborn son. But now here, we have the firstborn son, the only son of God, about to die. Uh, And we won't go into this in in, in detail, but Jesus actually takes that Passover meal and he says, this is about me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. He uses those symbols to point to the fact that his blood, like that lamb on the Passover, that his blood is being shed on behalf of his people. Uh, And so he says to them, As he takes the cup in verse 23, he gives thanks. They all drink from it. This is my blood of the covenant, verse 24, which is poured out for many, literally in place of many. So the Passover is fulfilled in this coming death of Jesus. He is going to die in the place of many. He is going to shed his blood the firstborn son of God is going to shed his blood so that his people do not have to die. So that image of looming judgment from Amos 2, 
that sense that, well, here's the, here's the young man fleeing away naked. The, the day of the Lord has come. The day of God's judgment has come. Jesus is saying, well, God's judgment is coming, but I will bear it myself in your place. And so, verse 32, we come to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' prayer. Uh, and um, what does Jesus pray? We're only told that Jesus prays three times in Mark's Gospel. Now, I imagine Jesus prayed more than three times in his lifetime, but Mark only tells us about Jesus praying three times. Once, right at the beginning, right, where Jesus resolves not to spend his time simply healing, but preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, then again, uh, when Jesus has fed the 5,000 people and they're tempted to come and, and the people want to come and make him king by force, but he chooses another path. His kingship lies down another route. His prayers in Mark are always a mark of uh, a fork in the road where Jesus has a choice to make. Will he go the easy way or the hard way? Will he follow the path that God has set for him? And here is easily the hardest of those three decisions in Mark's gospel. So it's a time of incredible anguish. Verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So the hour he's talking about is the hour of his uh, betrayal and crucifixion. So verse uh, 41, he says, the hour has come, look. The Son of Man is betrayed, delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. But three times he goes off and he prays the same thing, Mark tells us. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You might know this, but the cup that Jesus is talking about is not the cup that he has just shared with his disciples. But in the prophet's the pouring out of God's wrath on his people is described as a, a bitter cup that they're given to drink. Again, the symbol is of God's judgment falling. And Jesus says, I would do anything not to have to drink that cup, not to have to bear the horrors of God's judgment on evil. And yet each of those three times when he prays, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. The day of judgment has come. The cup of God's wrath is full. And Jesus chooses to drink it to the dregs so that his disciples can have the cup of life, the cup that symbolizes his blood shed on their behalf. And St. Mark's making his point very clear, isn't he? This is a huge moment in the history of the human race, alienated from God by sin, by evil, by choosing what is wicked. And Jesus takes it all himself on his own. 
Uh, and so the betrayal and the desertion of his friends takes on a whole new light. Jesus is going to die completely alone. Mark tells us very little about the crucifixion itself, except that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why I say I think Zechariah 13 is doing a lot of work here, because I don't know whether you noticed this. Jesus says two things about what's about to happen with his disciples fleeing. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Not only are the sheep scattered, but God strikes him. That word I, that's shocking, isn't it? Not only do Jesus' enemies plot against him, not only does his close friend Judas betray him, not only does everyone who's ever known him run away and abandon him, but God himself is going to strike him down. Jesus is going to face the bitterness of being completely alone, completely cut off for the sake of his people. And I think Mark wants us to see that the horror of what Jesus faces is not primarily the physical agony of the cross, but the spiritual and psychological agony of being completely deserted facing the horror of being cut off from his father and his fickle friends. Jesus prepares to suffer and to die alone so that we need never be alone, never deserted by the father, never cut off from him, but welcomed into his family. Now I look at my very few notes and I notice that we're about a third of the way through. So I'm going to skip over various things to do with the ironies that are here, the way that Mark uses the bitter irony of everything that's going on to, to just heighten our reaction to it. And I want to point us to just one thing before we finish. The desertion of the disciples helps us to understand what is going on with Jesus and with the crucifixion, he dies alone. But it also helps us to understand discipleship. You see, even here, Peter cannot let go of the idea that he is going to be the hero. That Jesus and his hand-picked team are going to take on the world. But Jesus says it's not that. He's not invited to himself a team of heroes who are going to help him fix everything. He is invited to himself a bunch of sinners who need mercy from God. And that even the great disciples, even the great Peter, on, who, on whom Jesus says he's going to build his church, all of them need mercy. All of them need Jesus. There are no heroes in the Christian faith other than Jesus. Everyone comes to him on the same terms. We come to him needing mercy needing forgiveness, needing that most terrible thing that we would never have imagined, that he must suffer in our place, which he chooses. I'm very struck by what Jesus 
says to Peter. Well, rather, what Jesus says to all his disciples. You'll all fall away, he says, verse 27. But then he says, verse 28, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Not only is their failure not a surprise to him, it is not about a relationship with him. He welcomes the weak, the fickle, the failure to himself and offers grace at his own expense. Ultimately, being a Christian is not about what you bring to him, but what he gives to you. And so there's an astonishing contrast that Mark paints in verses 1 to 10, in which you have the, uh, the, the great people in Jerusalem pot- plotting against Jesus. You have Judas at the end wanting to sell Jesus. And right in the middle, you have this beautiful picture of a woman who's the only person in the story who gets it. She actually gives in an incredibly extravagant act this jar of perfume, which the disciples say that's worth a year's wages. Just as an aside, that's roughly three times what Judas got for selling Jesus. She makes an extraordinarily extravagant gift, which Jesus says is to prepare me for my burial. The one person in this story who really understands, apart from Jesus, is this woman who Mark chooses not to name here. We know from the other Gospels that it's Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus. But it's a woman. And the only people who stand by Jesus at his crucifixion are women. And the only people in Mark who witness the resurrection are women. Now, a Jewish man in the days of Jesus, many religious Jewish men would have begun the day with this prayer, I thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And Mark wants us to know that everyone comes to Jesus on the same terms. The women who were were diminished in that culture, considered as unimportant to second-class citizens at best are elevated to great prominence by Mark. The world is turned upside down. The kingdom of God does not belong to the great, to those who are considered important by the world. Everyone comes on the same terms. Everyone comes because of the grace and the mercy that Jesus offers. Everyone comes in the end at his expense. And Jesus says, here's his other prophecy in this passage, chapter 14, verse nine, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She anointed him for his burial. She recognized what the men could not see. She is the paradigmatic disciple. And the result is this overflowing 
abundant, generous love and delight that she takes in Jesus. And it's my prayer that this Christmas, as we remember that the Son of God came into our world and remember why, that we would be so thrilled, so overwhelmed, so in awe of the generosity of Jesus that we would respond as she did, with overflowing, almost irrational love and delight in him. And that that will overflow to us being desperate that others should see what only Jesus can offer.